Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. How are we doing today? Everybody good? Man, those of you that are here with us in person, you look fantastic. And those that are joining us online, thank you for taking part of your Sunday to spend with us, however you're choosing to participate today. Man, I'm so thankful that you're here. It's a long time coming, and so we're just so thankful for what God has done over this last few months and, uh, and the opportunity for us to gather. Today's one of those, in my opinion, one of those milestone moments, and it's one of those moments, not just because we're in this room for those that are here in person, but because it really uh, signifies for us a, a, a transition in, in our ministry model. Uh, because, you know, when we were at Sequoia High School for the first four years of our existence, we had one service. We were all together every time we gathered. And then after we transitioned to this space, we immediately became a church of multiples because then we weren't all together really ever because we were in multiple services. And so we were in two services and then three services and then back to two services and then back to three services. And uh, we continued to expand our space. And so we would shrink the service numbers and then we would outgrow that space. And so we had to add an extra service uh, or two. And so we became a church of multiples. And then over the last five months, We've definitely been multiples because you've been watching at your house and somebody else has been watching at their house and some people have been watching at the beach. And uh, I don't know when we're launching the uh, Destin, Florida campus, but a bunch of you have been there the last few months. Uh, and so I would like to be the campus pastor there uh, full time. But no, I mean, so we've been in these multiple places, but today is really the first time that we have been in multiple places at the same time. And what I mean is we're doing ministry on site here at this present location, this physical location, and we're doing ministry wherever people are tuning in today from because we've never offered that. And so I'm thankful for that because it really shows the, the progress we're making towards what we believe God laid on our heart several years ago uh, to launch multiple different locations of Generations Church over the next uh, 10 or 12 years. And so we're thankful for what God has already started in that. And, uh, and so I'm excited for you to be a part of what I believe to be a milestone moment in the history of our church. And the other thing that I want to say about that is that today is really uh, kind of not the, not the finish line, but it is a tra- at the end of kind of a transition season where our team has worked incredibly hard over the last few months. And so for those that are in the room, those that are watching online, perhaps you joined us at some point over the course of those five months as we started streaming on March the 15th. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to never go back and watch the first few weeks of streaming because it was awful. All right. Here's what we know. We found out on like Thursday afternoon that we were going to be mandated to close. And so we had to learn how to stream in about 48 hours. Uh, and it was not awesome. But here's what we did. We made a commitment to get a little bit better, even if it was just incrementally better, just an inch better uh, every single week. And I believe that we've done that. And that is in large part to the incredible team of staff and volunteers that the Lord has given to our church. And, uh, and so I'm thankful, Pastor Trevor Heinemann and, and Zach and Justin and Garrett and Ben and some of those guys on the media team, the Matt, Pastor Matt Popham and, and others that have just jumped in. And every single week we've continued to do ministry. So even though we weren't gathered together on Sundays, we moved our groups online and we moved Discovery Track online and we hosted small events. Our worship team every single week led us in worship, even though they had to lead uh, to an empty room. And so they would come on Wednesdays or Thursdays early on and pre-record those worship sets. Uh, and if you've never led worship to an empty room, it's, it's about as tough as preaching to an empty room. And then we transitioned to live worship, even though we were streaming. And I'm just so thankful for Pastor Steve and that team as well. So would you do me a, hand, a favor? Would you just give them a hand for their hard work these last few months? You know, it's been said that you don't really know a lot about somebody till they're put under pressure, and I would say that that is absolutely true, and our team has responded incredibly well over the last few months. And speaking of team, 
Uh, Corey mentioned it a few minutes ago, and we also did this in our pre-service. Uh, but I'm so thankful today to welcome Pastor Aaron and Bethany White. Would you guys just stand right over here? I know those on the stream may not be able to see them. Maybe you can see their picture here. We're so thankful. They're our new family ministries pastor, and it was referenced earlier, but we have a meet and greet for our youth ministry, middle school, high school, and any parents that want to come this Wednesday night, 630 here at the church. We'd love for you to get to know them. We think that you're going to love them as much as we already do. So uh, today, I am uh, just thrilled to get to preach to a room with some people, and and I've said this a couple of different times, but the better that you amen, the better that I preach, and the shorter that I go, okay? So uh, don't amen me yet. That was me. In a minute, it'll be awesome. That was just me. But, But here's the deal. Today we're continuing in our series, Won't You Be My Neighbor? We started this last week, and it's really an intentional invitation into life together. Because it would be easy for us just to say, like, somebody moves next door, somebody starts working on our job, somebody starts, you know, kind of, they jump into our class in school, and they're just kind of our neighbor, literally or figuratively, and we don't really have anything to do with that or about that. But saying, won't you be my neighbor, is an invitation into life together. And to say to someone, won't you be my neighbor, won't you do life with me, uh, that, that's a pretty uh, big leap. And I think it's what we're called to do. Last week when we started this series, uh, we went to Mark chapter 12, and we went to the place in the Gospels where Jesus was asked a question, what's the most important commandment? And he said this, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And what we said is that he concluded that answer by saying, there is no commandment singular greater than these, plural, that you cannot separate these two ideas of loving God with everything that you are and loving your neighbor as yourself. They are tied together through the words of Jesus Christ and you cannot separate them. So as much as we want to, we can't just say, I'm loving God, I'm chasing God, I'm religious, whatever you may say, but I just don't, I'm not a people person. I don't love people and I don't really like people and I especially don't like those people. God doesn't give us that out. He doesn't give us that qualifier. He says, no, you have to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, And the second is like it. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we talked about the fact that we have great worth and value because God has given that to us. And that worth and value then should be transferred to those in our lives, our neighbors. And here's what I said last week about me. Perhaps you would identify with this. The closer I get to God, the more he pushes me closer to people I struggle to love. The closer I get to God, the more he continually pushes me closer to people that I struggle to love. And it's in those struggles, it's in those moments of really wrestling to figure out how to love those people that I struggle to love that I actually learn about the love of God toward me. Because when I read the Bible, it's so easy for me to put myself in the position of the hero of those stories. And yet, so often what I miss is that I'm the difficult person in that story. I'm the, the hard person in that story. I'm the sinner in that story. I'm the, 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 the villain in that story. And so I recognize the love and the grace of God the closer God pushes me to people that I struggle to love personally. And so today, rather than just focusing on the great commandment, which is what we did last week, uh, I want us to focus on one of the Ten Commandments. So in the Old Testament, God was establishing a a people. He was establishing this Hebrew nation. And as a part of that, he was giving to them these ten guiding principles, these ten pillars that they should conduct themselves and live their lives kind of centered around. Jesus came and said, I'm the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. Everything hangs on me. And so all of that we see, but it's still important for us to recognize what the Ten Commandments represented to God's chosen people in the Old Testament. We come to the tenth of those commandments. We're going to look in Exodus. So if you've got a Bible or device, I'd love for you to uh, track along with me today. Exodus. 
Exodus is at the beginning of your Bible. You've got Genesis, Exodus. It's the second book. If you don't know where to find it, use the table of contents. You paid for it. Uh, so Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, this is what it says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So again, I said this was the 10th commandment. There's nine others, obviously, that come before it. And so in this 10th commandment, in the final commandment that God is establishing, laying out for his people, he says, hey, there's something that you need to know. You've put no other God before me. You've you've honored father and mother. You're not going to kill other people. All of those things, we're just going to keep working down the list. You're going to keep the Sabbath day and make it holy. And as we conclude this list, you need to make sure that you do not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or their husband or, or their servant or their ox or their donkey or whatever. And so you put it in present day language and you go, well, my neighbor doesn't have an ox or a donkey, but their pets or their toys or the things that they possess. And just to make sure he didn't miss anything, the last line said, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So he just kind of catches everything else. Anything that belongs to your neighbor, don't covet that. Now, when you think about the word covet, maybe that's not a word that you use regularly. And I said in the first service, uh, if you do use that regularly, I would love to have a conversation and just see how you work that in because I don't use that regularly. So the word covet is literally defined to desire, to long for, to lust after. And so this word covet in the Hebrew of the Old Testament is the same word that we use in the New Testament for lust. And so when Jesus is saying, hey, if you lust after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart, he's saying, hey, the same idea here. If you covet, if you desire, if you long for something that is not yours to possess, you have committed sin. And so when Jesus is saying in the New Testament, hey, listen, when you try to see with your eyes, to possess something with your eyes, to long for something with your eyes that you are, that's not rightfully yours, then you've committed sin in your heart. This is the same idea that God is laying out here in the Ten Commandments. And so he says, hey, your neighbor's house and, and their relationships, their family, their marriage, their, 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 their belongings, the toys that they have, everything that they have, you should not covet, desire, long after those things. But there is this question that automatically pops up into my mind when I read that and when I think that, like, where is the balance then in trying to figure out like, okay, my neighbor's got something nice though. My neighbor has something that maybe I aspire to have or that I long for, that I do want. Like, where is the line between what's okay and what's not okay? And so I want to reframe that question by asking it this way. Do you want what they have or do you want what they got? Now, when we were putting the notes in, Zach was typing these in, and he said, do you want me to change this? I was like, no, let's let the English teacher sweat. Because do you want what they have, or do you want what they got? And here's what I mean by that. When you see what they have, is that something that you want what they have? You look at it, and you desire to have that thing that they possess. Or... Is there something in your heart, something in your mind, as you, as you begin to see what they have, you go, man, their, their house or their, their marriage or their family life or their job or the toys that they do have, like as I'm processing that, do I process that in a healthy way to say, hey, I don't know how they got that, but I want to try to determine how they got that, and I want to go through a similar process to get something like that, potentially. So let me give you some specific examples. If you kind of look across the fence in your neighbor's backyard and you see that they got a new toy, There's something that they possess now in their life. And you go, man, I want to have that. That's wrong. But if you say, I don't know, like, I wonder how long they had to save. I wonder where they found something like that and how they worked toward acquiring a possession like that. Like, I need to come up with my process to go about the same things. And it could be in that process I determine that that's not best for me 
or from my family. So we say, okay, well, I, I really, man, I love watching their marriage. I love the way she interacts with him or he interacts with her. If you want what they have, that's potentially wrong. But if you want what they got, then you start to process like, I wonder how they got there. I wonder how they wrestled through the hard conversations. I wonder if they went to counseling when things got tough. I wonder if they went to some marriage enrichment things and attended couple to couple at our church when that's advertised in the spring. I wonder how they got to where they are so that maybe I can go through a personal process to get where they are in my own relationship or, or, or other things as you try to start to acquire. You, I think I really love how much he talks about loving his job. Or I love how she talks about the people she works with with such like a smile on her face. If I want what they have, then I'm starting to long for their job, but maybe you're not good at their job. Maybe you don't have the skills necessary or the passion to do their job. But maybe you start to process that and go, man, I wonder what I'm passionate about. I wonder what I could find to do with my life Monday through Friday that would bring me as much fulfillment. I'm going to maybe go back and get some additional education, or I'm going to interview for a different job, or I'm going to kind of look through my peer network and see if there are openings in areas of my passion so that I can get to a place where my job brings me the kind of fulfillment that that person has. It's not that I want what they have, it's that I want what they got. Does that make sense what I'm saying to anybody? So what I would say here is as I'm trying to process this, here's what it looks like for me personally. To want what they have is about taking possession of their possessions. But wanting what they got is about pursuing my own personal process. There is a difference. And so when I think about what they have, I have to determine in my own life, like how do I get to a similar place and is that where God is leading me personally? The difference is often motive. The difference is often the heart of the matter. And here's what I can't do. I would love to do it. I would love to know what's in your heart. I would love to know what you're thinking and, and, and what the motives are that you're using to process and to make decisions, but I can't do that. And so ultimately, you're the only one that can honestly answer something like that. So let's jump to another story that I think will help to unpack that a little further. You can flip back from Exodus 1 book to the book of Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible. It should be even easier to find. And we're going to go to the third chapter of Genesis, which should be very easy to find, to the story of Adam and Eve, very famous story. This is what it says beginning in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now here's what you need to know right up front. Fruit is not a sin. I wish it was because then I wouldn't feel so bad when I don't like it, right? Fruit is not a sin. You know what is a sin? disobedience. And so in this story, it is not the fact that Eve ate the fruit or took the fruit and gave the fruit. It's not the fact that it was fruit. It's the fact that God had said, you can eat from any tree in the garden except that one. But what caught her eye? What caught their eye? The one that she wasn't supposed to engage, right? And so now she's in this conversation. Now she is drawn by her own desires to this tree And it's disobedience that's the problem and not the fruit. So Eve's desire for fruit wasn't the issue. It's that God had said no and she said yes. What had pleased her eye was bad for her heart. Now I can say my diet probably lives by that too much. There's some things that I see with my eye and I go, man, that looks amazing. But, you know, a cardiologist would probably not want me to eat those things, right? 
well, this is a spiritual cardiology appointment to determine how's the health of our heart related to the things that we desire. And so as I think about those things, it causes me to really question What is it that she was responding to? Look at what we just read again. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable, I'm flashing forward now, then the eyes of both of them were open. There's two things here with the eyes. The first is that something catches her eye. And then after she gives in to temptation and she is disobedient to the voice of God, then her eyes are opened to the cost of sin. And I think when I look back over my life, and perhaps you can do the same, when I'm driven by desire alone and not obedience, I'm not always able to see the cost of sin until it's too late. And so when I process my own journey, when I process the things that I've done, it does not mean that desirable things are all bad, but are we strong enough and wise enough to delay in our desires to determine if disobedience is required to have them? And so as I process all of these things related to desire, I'm trying to understand, like, what is it that I can do in moments of desire, in moments of passion, in moments of temptation? And you can put that in every context imaginable, not just the one that culture is trying to pin it to. In those moments where my eye is drawn to something that God has said no, and I'm trying to convince myself, my flesh is trying to convince me that I should say yes, how do I respond? I pray, God, open my eyes to recognize this temptation and the price that I would pay for the sin. This is what James is talking about in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. He says this, But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. When I think about what James is saying right here, he says that desire can lead to death unless we deal with it. Desire can lead to death. It doesn't have to unless we deal with it. If we allow it to give birth to sin, then sin leads to death. If if desire doesn't leave you room to delay or to deny it, it's probably very dangerous. When I come to a moment of desire in any context, if I'm not able to deny that or delay that, it's probably dangerous because there's not enough time to process whether or not disobedience is required here. And so I come to a moment where we read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, that says this, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I crucify the flesh. The imagery here is what we see in the life and the body of Jesus Christ, who was crucified, literally put to death so that you and I could experience life. And so when I think about what's required of me, it is daily taking the opportunity to say, God, I, I have some things. I have some passions. I have some desires. I've got some stuff. And so, God, I crucify those things. I put those things to death so that I can live alive by the Spirit. I give to you my life. I give to you my heart. And, God, would you fill me with the things that you desire for me to have? It's a daily process, not a one-time thing. And so you're like, okay, what does this have to do with neighbors? I'm glad you asked. Because here's the reality for all of us. Neighbors live next door. Neighbors are in our neighborhood, or they're on our jobs, or they're in our schools, or they eat at our restaurants that we like to eat at, or they sit on the rows in front or behind us at church. And neighbors have cool things in their life. And neighbors have things that catch our eye. And in our pursuit of a relationship with God, 
God thought it important enough to include in the guiding ten commandments of the Hebrew people and in the fulfillment of all of those things in the words of Jesus Christ that we should not put our eyes on our neighbor's stuff. So where should our focus be? Where should our eyes actually be? When we're looking over the fence at the people next door or in the cubicle next to us or in the classroom across the hall or the person in the next row, where should we focus our attention? How should we conduct ourselves? Well, I'll tell you the great temptation for all of us is to fall into the trap of comparison. The trap of comparison. Comparison by itself is not always bad. But usually there are two outcomes to comparison. The first is that when we compare, we start saying, oh, look at what they have. Look at, oh man, woe is me. I don't have what they have. I wish I had what they had. Look at what they have. Woe is me. Or, look at what I have. Look at me. There is the sense in comparison to go one way or the other. That we compare and we feel less than, woe is me, I'm not enough, I don't measure up, I wish I had what they have. Or, look at me, they don't have what I have. I'm somebody, I'm a self-made man or woman, and I've got all of my stuff together. And the temptation and the trap of comparison is that we either feel worse about ourselves than we should, or we feel better about ourselves than we should, And ultimately, we're using the wrong measuring stick. Here's what we know about comparison. Comparison is the enemy of contentment. Comparison is the enemy of contentment. And I don't mean contentment in that you can't aspire to more, want to grow in your job, and want to acquire some things in your life that you may not have, or want to get in a better financial position. I don't mean that in contentment. I'm saying being content in who God is in your life and the things that God has blessed you with so that you rest in that and you don't strive in an unhealthy way towards things that are desires of yours, but would require potentially disobedience to get there. So we rest in contentment, and we choose not to fall prey to the trap of comparison. We don't allow comparison to rob us of what God has given to us. We take our eyes off our neighbor's stuff, and we put our eyes on the Father. You know, earlier we read from James chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15. And if you go down to verse 17 in that same chapter of James 1, this is what he says. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good and perfect gift is from above. So often in my life, I have forgotten that truth. When I get my eyes on my neighbor's stuff, I start longing for things I don't yet have, and I miss out on the reality that God has gifted to me out of his goodness the things that I need. Every good and perfect gift is from above. When my focus and my eyes are on the Father and not on my neighbor's stuff, I am not led by my desires. I'm actually led towards gratitude. I'm actually led towards thankfulness. You know, James was one smart fella. 
His book in the New Testament is often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament because there's so many just individual nuggets that you can pull out almost like the Proverbs and you can just take those one-liners and apply them to your life and contextualize them in your heart and in your soul to really determine how you can live in ways that please and honor God. And I love what he says here, but my favorite part, other than every good and perfect gift, that's great. My favorite part of what he says here in verse 17 is the very last few words where he says this, who does not change like shifting Shadows. Who does not change like shifting shadows. You know what happens to me related to desire? I'm never fully satisfied. Right? It doesn't matter how much I eat at lunch today. I'm already pretty hungry. It doesn't matter how full I get at lunch. You know what I'm going to be thinking about 30 minutes later? Dinner. Because that's, that's how we're wired. That's, that's what our body does. And so when we start trying to fulfill and to quench desire, we are never fully satisfied no matter how amazing it is. It is fleeting. It's like I got to have the newest device, the newest toy, the newest thing. I got to have a bigger house. And, a, and we get in there and we're like, man, I wish this house had this feature. I wish this thing that I got, my, my new phone, my new tablet, my new computer. I wish, man, I wish, man, they got, they're coming out with a new one next month. And now we're desiring something else because we're never fully satisfied, never able to quench our desires when they're related to what we see with our eyes. It's constantly shifting, constantly shifting. We're always looking for something more to possess, something more to acquire, something more to fill us. And I use the the food illustration already, but I'm telling you like, I'm never fully satisfied. If you are a medical doctor or a nutritionist and this is not true, do not tell me because I've been saying this for years. But you get to the end of your meal and you're so full and then the guy at the Mexican restaurant walks by with a sopapilla for another table. You're like, I'll have one of those. It's like, I thought you were full. Dessert goes to a different part of the stomach. I don't even know if that's true, but we're just gonna act like it's true. We're just gonna let Jeremy be naive, okay? Because we're just convinced that we can always take on more. We can always have more. We are never fully and completely satisfied by our desires. It's constantly shifting to the next thing, the next thing that catches our eye, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But what James says is that the Father in heaven who gives to us every good and perfect gift, he is not changing like the shifting shadows. He's stable. He is true. He is right. He is steadfast. You can trust him. And in him, you can be fulfilled. You can be satisfied. You can find all that you need in him. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father who does not change like all of our desires and passions and whims that catch our eye. And so we say, God, I trust you. God, I love you. God, I've got some things that are in my heart. I I want the desires of my heart. I do. And God, I I see next door some things they've got. And I see across the hall some things that they they have that they, man, it just, it catches my eye. and, And I want what they have. But God, would you help me to just want what they got? 
God, would you help me to search myself and really lean into my personal process of pursuing you? And God, would you help me to search who I am and who I am in you and how you've gifted me and how you're sustaining me and what you're drawing me to? And God, would you help me not to want what they have, but to get what they got as I chase after you, as you give me every good and perfect gift that you desire for me? God, would you please do that for me? Don't let me be drawn by all the things of the shifting shadows and the things that catch my eye and every new thing that that my eye attaches to. God, would you just help me to focus my heart and focus my life on the unchanging truth of who you are and let that be enough. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do today. I'm just gonna ask you just to bow your head, close your eyes. Just a moment of personal reflection between you and God. Even those watching today online, I'm asking you just to respond the same way. Just close your eyes just for a second. Bow your head. Just ask God, God, what is it that you're saying to me right now? A lot's been said. A lot's been done. Help me, God, to focus on what you have for me right now. And if you would say to me today, Jeremy, for me, I know that I need to take a first step into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I need to ask him to forgive my sins and to lead my life, to be my Lord. I don't want to miss this opportunity. I want to trust him with my life. I've fallen short of the glory of God, which is what Romans tells us everyone has done. And I I want to acknowledge that and ask him to lead my life from this moment forward. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right there online where you're watching? You can just put that in the chat or click the button that's available to you. Respond. Let us know you're taking this step. Thank you so much. Now, if you would say, Jeremy, for me, I, I have fallen into the trap of comparison, maybe coveting some things. Maybe, maybe I've made some mistakes and I've lost contentment. I'm not looking to the Father. I'm focusing on some other things. And I want God to help my desires to be about the things that he desires for me. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? I want to pray for you. Thank you so much. Several hands today. If you're watching online today, please just let us know how we can pray for you. We want to respond to what God's doing in your heart and your life right now. God, we love you. And we thank you so much for this day. So much has been done. So many things have been said. But God, we just pause long enough to thank you for your grace towards us, your goodness towards us. God, in this moment, this monumental moment in the history of our church, it's not about our church. It's all about you. And so God, we ask you today to be glorified in all that we say and do. And God, I pray now for those who've responded and they've asked you to be their Lord and Savior today. God, I pray that right now, If they're in this room or they're in a living room at home or they're watching somewhere else, God, that your presence would fill their hearts, you would forgive their sins, and you would let them know that their eternity has been changed. God, I pray for the generations that would come after them, that they would be changed because of the decisions that are made today. God, we thank you for that. God, now I pray for those who are just acknowledging that they have a need for you to help them in the area of comparison and coveting Their desires may not reflect their heart towards you. And so, God, would you forgive them, heal them, repurpose and refocus those desires towards the things that you would have for them. God, I pray today that they would find contentment in you and in you alone. God, we thank you that you don't shift. You're constant, you're true, and you're good towards us. And so, God, today, help us to experience that goodness like never, ever before give you all the glory and all the honor for it. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said...
Amen. Would you? Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.